Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me on this rainy morning for another episode of Oddity Podity. A couple weeks ago, I told y'all about the hauntings at the Drake Hotel in Chicago, Illinois. That's a pretty hoity-toity place where I probably wouldn't fit in, but that doesn't mean that I'd miss out if I went ghost hunting in the Windy City. Turns out there are plenty of bars with haunted history, two of which I'm going to tell you about today. One is called the Liars Club and the other is the Red Lion Pub. So if you're in the mood to have some spirits with your spirits, keep listening, because a visit to these bars might drive you to drink. dad was discharged from the army, we moved around a lot for a little while before settling in Arkansas. We weren't rich and we lived in some sincerely creepy places because it was all we could afford. One of those places was a two-story brownstone in Wichita, Kansas. I was very, very young. I had to be only about two or three years old because my brother wasn't born yet. But I remember quite a bit about those times, even though I was so little. Our downstairs neighbors, a pair of lovely ladies, one whose name was Marnie, but I don't remember the other one's name, they owned about a billion cats. I also remember walking down to this greasy spoon around the corner with my mom to pick up some flat-top fried burgers for dinner. I also remember playing at this nearby city park, where later several children were abducted and murdered by a serial killer. But most of all, I remember being awakened in the night by the sound of people fist-fighting outside. You see, our brownstone was next door to a roadhouse bar, and my bedroom window faced its parking lot. The sound of honky-tonk music, beer bottles breaking on skulls, and the wet sound of knuckles landing on teeth were my nighttime lullabies. Sometimes it got too intense, and I'd hide in my closet with my pillow, which I named Squiggy after one of the greasers on the show Laverne and Shirley. I imagined that Pillow Squiggy would protect me if one of the honky-tonkers threw a bottle through my window or fired a stray bullet through the wall. If you don't know who Squiggy was, Google him and you'll see how horrible my taste in men was at such a tender age. Bars always have been and always will be places where violence can break out at the drop of a hat. Any place that revolves around alcohol has the potential to explode like a powder keg. Maybe it was my experience with bars at such an early age that resulted in my fascination with honky-tonk hauntings. Or maybe it's just because I like to drink and act a fool. In any case, I love a good haunted bar tale. And the Windy City, also known as Chicago, seems to have more than its fair share of them. The Liars Club, located at 1665 West Fullerton Avenue, is a popular bar with an eclectic mix of clientele. It reminds me a lot of Ernestine and Hazel's in Memphis. The bar has been called the Liars Club since 1995, but it owes its spooky ambiance to some of its previous inhabitants. You see, the Liars Club was the scene of at least three murders. And we aren't talking about your average run-of-the-mill bar fights gone bad. Not one, but two axe murders were committed there, as well as the death that occurred on the other end of a soda bottle. According to CBSNews.com, the details of the first axe murder are hazy. It's frequently cited without the names of the murderer or the victim, but everything I found agreed that the incident occurred in 1958. But 10 years later, a second person was murdered in the building, and this time it definitely made the papers. In 1968, the building at 1665 West Fullerton was operating as a homeless shelter. Two men were sharing an apartment on the second floor. 70-year-old John Parlia 
and 27-year-old Samuel Castle Jr. One day, the roommates began fighting over who was the rightful owner of a pair of used pants. Now, this may sound silly to those of us who have plenty of pants, but remember, we're talking about two men who have nothing, so I imagine it was kind of a big deal. It must have been, or else Castle wouldn't have taken up a glass soda bottle and beat Parlea to a pulp with it. To ensure that he'd be the forever owner of those pants, Castle went ahead and pushed Parlea out of the window for good measure. Parlea was rushed to the hospital, but it was too late. Some sources say that he died there, but others say that Parlea actually died in that second floor apartment and that he was dead upon arrival at the hospital, and that's just where he was officially pronounced. But there's no doubt where the third person who died at the Liars Club officially passed on. It occurred in April of 1988 and was documented thoroughly in the Chicago Tribune at the time. According to CBSNews.com, Frank and Julia Hansen owned the bar at the time, and they lived in the apartment on the third floor of it. The couple had a rocky relationship, to say the least. Julia was known to be verbally abusive to Frank. Among other things, she took great pleasure in insulting Frank about his physical size, or lack thereof. Apparently, Julia was much larger than he was, and she loved to make fun of him for it. On that fateful day in 1988, the abuse escalated from verbal to physical. The couple were fighting over money when Julia suddenly pushed Frank down and began violently choking him on their third floor bedroom. Frank broke free of her, grabbed an axe that was lying nearby, and swung it at Julia. He struck her repeatedly in the head, chest, and back until she died. According to the Chicago Tribune, Julia was pregnant at the time of her death. To make this story even more horrible, if that's possible, Frank left Julia's body in the apartment for six days before he finally called the police. And that's not where the violence at the Liars Club ends. In addition to these three terrible murders, Adam Seltzer notes in an article posted on MysteriousChicago.com in October of 2009, a man came close enough to death to smell its stank breath in 1955 when he was shot and nearly killed there. And in 2008, another guy got into a fight in the upstairs room and got his throat cut. By some tremendous stroke of luck, he didn't die and became one of the ghosts that said to frequent the bar. So it should come as no surprise that Julia's ghost is one that's been frequently seen in the decades since she passed. According to that article on CBS.com, the ghost of a man walking up and down the stairs has also been seen on more than one occasion. Those accounts don't say whether he's wearing pants or not, so it's unclear who the man was in life, but he's always seen going up and down the stairs at the Liars Club. The CBSNews.com article also quotes the Liars Club owner, Herb Brosen, as he told of his own paranormal experiences in the bar. The piece said, quote, I was in the basement doing some kind of paperwork or something in the office, and for no reason whatsoever, I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. But I got so scared and filled with dread that I jumped up from the desk, ran upstairs, and ran out into the street and did not come back until nighttime, he said. This was the middle of the day, for no real reason. That's never happened to me before, so it's kind of strange. But that was not all. Our friend Candy came in and was sitting at the end of the bar. My buddy Cookie was sitting up, and Wes was in the DJ booth in the corner. And she saw a woman behind Wes in the DJ booth, but she knew it wasn't a real person. And supposedly, that's Julia from upstairs, Rosen said. And then the same woman supposedly in the bathroom. Another friend of ours opened the bathroom door on the second floor to go in, 
and there was a woman in there crying. She's like, oh, sorry, shut the door and waited and waited and waited and waited. Nothing. 15 minutes later, opens the door. There's nobody in there. There's not a window you can fit out of, even if you're willing to jump up there. So that one was pretty wild. End quote. Rosen also said that a woman who was alone in that same bathroom got her hair pulled and a bar back who was working for him felt someone grab his elbow when he was alone upstairs and that the swinging doors that lead to the back bar frequently open and shut by themselves. If the ghosts at the Liars Club aren't enough for you, you can find more just about a mile away at the Red Line Pub located at 2446 North Lincoln Avenue. It has an equally strange and haunted history. According to ShyBarProject.com, the building that the Red Line Pub calls home was originally built in 1880. In those days, it was smack dab in the middle of the country. But over time, the city of Chicago as we know it today grew up around it. Eventually, a place called the Biograph Theater was built right across the street. Now, the Biograph Theater was where John Dillinger was shot and killed by Melvin Purvis of the Justice Department's Division of Investigation, which is now called the FBI. In the one-year span between June of 1933 and June of 1934, Dillinger and his gang robbed at least 12 banks in the Chicago area and was accused of robbing twice that many. He was able to narrowly evade capture that whole time, but during one daring escape, he got into a shootout with a police officer. He shot and killed that officer, but the cop got a shot in him as well, and he was forced to go into hiding to recuperate. Naturally, Dillinger didn't recuperate at the hospital. No, he was an outlaw, so he chose to get medical treatment at a brothel. That's right, he went to hang out and recover at a brothel, owned by his pal, Anna Cumpanas, who not only managed a house of sex workers doubling as nurses, but who also turned out to be a police informant. Yeah, Anna was not really a pal. She sold Dillinger out and told the cops where he would be on July 22, 1934, which was the Biograph Theater. At that time, the Red Line Pub was a Greek fruit stand, and Dillinger liked to stop in and grab an apple to snack on before he headed out to Anna's place or to the theater. But on this particular day in July, when Anna sold him out, Dillinger tried to flee again, and he was shot in the back as he ran out of the theater. He died right across the street from the Red Line Pub. After all this drama, the building went through a number of reincarnations. The Greek fruit stand turned into a full-blown produce store. Then it was transformed into an IBM typewriter assembly factory. Next, it swung in the complete opposite direction and housed a head shop where it's been claimed that the three and a half inch rolling paper was invented there. This paper is known as a double wide because you can pack twice the amount of um, product into it that you can with a regular size rolling paper. So you can see why someone wanted to lay claim to those bragging rights. By the 1980s, the place had transformed into a place called Dirty Dan's Western Saloon. By all accounts, it completely lived up to that name. Despite the fact that the place was a rat and roach-infested dump, Dirty Dan still offered an all-you-can-eat spaghetti and salad bar, which more than a few folks were willing to overlook the mouse and bug droppings to partake in. Around this same time, a British gentleman by the name of John Cordwell was in search of the perfect place to open a bar one that he would fashion after the traditional English pubs of his homeland. John searched high and low until he was so tired that he decided he needed a cup of coffee. He stopped at a French bakery next door to the Biograph Theater for a cup, and as he sat drinking it, his gaze fell upon a dilapidated building across the street with a for sale sign in the window. It seemed that Dirty Dan, also known as Dan Danforth, 
wanted out of the noodle and rat tart industry. So John crossed the street and the two of them struck a deal. John began renovating the building, which took an entire three months just to clean out. The lesson here is that if a place of business contains the word dirty in it, do not assume that it's just a euphemism. Once thoroughly cleaned, sanitized, and given a proper British facelift, the place was reborn as the Red Line Pub, which held its grand opening on November 16th of 1984. Like Dirty Dan, John Cordwell, the new owner of the pub, was a bit of a legend himself, but not for being the owner of a filthy spaghetti warehouse. If you've ever seen the movie The Great Escape, then you're familiar with the true story of 70 Allied airmen who escaped a Nazi POW camp during World War II. Hitler himself ordered all of the men captured and killed. I'm not going to ruin the movie for you, but I need you to know that only three of those men made it out alive. And one of those men was John Cordwell. He was the inspiration for the character Flat Lieutenant Colin Blythe, who was known as the Forger and played by Donald Pleasance in the movie. John Cordwell was a gifted artist, and he used his talents to forge passports, and he also helped dig the tunnel out to escape. When he returned from the war and came to Chicago, he continued using his artistic skills to found an architectural firm, and he also served as director of the City of Chicago Planning Commission, so he knew a thing or two about renovation and design. Apparently, John had been thinking about owning a bar for a long, long while because he'd taught his young son Colin how to mix cocktails from the time he was about seven years old. This training came in handy when he opened the Red Line Pub and needed a bartender. He had a built-in one with his son. Today, Colin manages the bar. A memorial plaque honoring John hangs beneath a stained glass window over the stairway. There are literature readings each night in the dining room with themes like science fiction, fantasy, and on Monday nights, erotic prose, balanced out by open mic comedy on Thursday nights. But I wouldn't be talking about the Red Line Pub on this podcast if all there was to it was fish and chips and Shakespeare readings. Like a lot of haunted places, there's buried history that may never be unearthed, but regardless, the ghosts are left behind. Though no one is exactly sure 100% where these ghosts came from or for sure exactly who all of them are, the Red Line Pub is famous for its hauntings. The spirits began to appear in earnest while John Cordwell was cleaning out Dirty Dan's old place. That happens a lot. Ghosts usually don't like having their homes being remodeled without their input. Different apparitions started showing up, believed to be past patrons or workers who either died in the building or in the buildings nearby, such as John Dillinger did across the street. The paranormal activity increased when the second floor apartments in the building were converted into a second upstairs bar. At this point, a cold spot settled at the top of the stairs and people heard footsteps on them when there was no one in the stairs or anywhere near them. According to an article posted on ChaiBarProject.com, in 1999, a local radio station held a seance in the bar. I'm quoting directly from the article in reference to the list of spirits witnessed by the attendees. Quote, a scruffy, swaggering cowboy. Two males, one of which is a bearded, dark-haired man who was killed by a blonde-haired man as a result of a gambling debt. A dark-haired woman named Sharon, dressed in 1920s-era clothes, who likes to hold the ladies' restroom door shut on the second floor, trapping female patrons for at least 15 to 20 minutes. She also likes to tidy up the place. A disembodied female scream, also from the restroom upstairs. According to Richard T. Crow in his book Chicago Street Guide to the Supernatural, when this scream was once heard in his presence, a woman cop kicked in the locked door only to find no one inside. 
a 20-year-old mentally disabled woman who was known for wearing too much lavender perfume and can now be detected by that same smell. John Cordwell's father, who did not receive a proper burial back in England. A woman who died from an epileptic seizure in the restaurant area downstairs. The malicious former owner, Dirty Dan Danforth, who is believed to be responsible for an invisible force that shoved Colin Cordwell down the stairs, which sent Colin to the hospital. He himself used to speak of his invisible friends to the video store owner across the street. And finally, the last ghost is John Cordwell himself, who passed away in 1999 and allegedly appeared as a bright, smoke-like spirit in a photo taken of a couple one night in the pub in 2003. Colin claims that the lie is clearly that of his father due to the outline of his cap, glasses, and hand on the woman's breast, end quote. All that sounds pretty dang cool, except I would not like it if my dad appeared as a ghost and groped a woman right in front of me. Apparently, Colin is fine with it, though. Nowadays, you can get a cheap but satisfying British meal and a pint of ale while in search of ghosts at the Red Lion Pub. I've read that Colin Cordwell is an excellent bartender slash psychologist as well, so maybe you can get some free therapy too, but be sure to tip him for his efforts. For more information and to check out the Liars Club and the Red Lion Pub have to offer, check out their websites, which I'll link in the show notes. I also wanted to note something that I messed up on. After I recorded this whole podcast, I went back and looked at my notes and I saw that I said that the murder of Julia Hansen happened in 1988. She actually was killed in April of 1986, but Frank was convicted of the murder in 1988. So I wanted to clarify that and correct that little detail. Thanks, y'all, for being so understanding when I mess up. At this point, I've covered so many haunted bars that I'm thinking of doing an extended pub crawl across the U.S. of those that I haven't visited yet. If y'all have any suggestions, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook or send me an email at odditypoddity at gmail.com. Guys, as always, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I hope that you'll join me again next week, same time, same place, for a little more history and a little more haunt. We'll see you then.